At the Sports History Network, we're proud to introduce you to a new sponsor for our podcasts. It's Homefield Apparel, your premium collegiate apparel brand right out of Indianapolis. They've got incredibly comfortable t-shirts, plus they're officially licensed with vintage college designs. They have over 150 plus colleges available now and always adding more. Homefield digs through the archives and history of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for your school. When you shop today, new customers can get a 15% discount off their first purchase using the promo code SPORTSHISTORY at checkout. You can learn more at homefieldapparel.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to Game Film, the sports movie review podcast, with your hosts, Aaron Harris and Oz Davis. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Game Film for our second episode about billiards. I'm Aaron Harris, joined by Oz Davis, and today we have three pool movies, two of them classics, one of them that sounds intriguing enough to check out, but may not live up to the first two. But first, Oz Davis, and ask, why do you think it's so hard to find good pool movies? I, that's a... Great question. It's a, it's a good consideration because you want to say, okay, we'll talk about the Hustler 1961 first. This movie crushed it at the Oscars. And a lot of that has to do with the big actors in it, the big name actors in it who are all awesome, by the way. They all get nominations for the Oscar, by the way. Um, and plus it's got that noir style that's now been around for about 20 years or so in a big way. So you have a whole generation of film goers who want more of this, right? And so st- style points mean a lot for the hustler. Okay. So on one, on one respect, you want to say, well, it was nominated for all these Oscars, right? It's like a master of the genre. There's no point in doing it anymore. But let me tell you, that doesn't stop people from making more boxing movies. It doesn't stop people from making more baseball movies, you know, or football movies, you know, uh, which, you know, like the football was nominated for uh, the Notre Dame film. I forget exactly what it was called, but it was the famous win one for the Gipper, right? This was a big deal Hollywood movie, right? So, but it's not that. And, and the thing is like pool, it creates these very charismatic characters. Like we're going to see in these movies. Um, it looks great. I mean, you got that nice green felt. This is, this is one of the reasons why baseball movies work so well. You got that nice green field with the nice brown infield. And here you have pool, right? It's, it's basically just a nicely lit green surface with all these different colored, nicely shaped spheres on it. You know, you would, you would think that you'd have a lot more of that. Maybe the color of money is a great example of how these films should be done. I mean, you love these bits where 
they just do like multiple games like super quick or they're intercutting the dueling pool players with each other. See, pool has one of these advantages where not that many folks watch it on TV. So you're not expecting it to look any certain way. So you can do it any way you want to. It's kind of like uh, movies with street basketball in it, right? You don't really watch street basketball on TV, so you can do it any way you want to. And pool is another thing like that. So why aren't there more pool movies? Why aren't there more good pool movies? Great question. No clue. It's, it's a mystery to me. You know, I, I think oftentimes it suffers from the same cliches that poker movies do. You know, there's this tendency to try to make this grand statement or this grand um, analogy about life using that game. You know, it's like in poker when some people think that, you know, they'll try to make the analogy like, oh, you never know what kind of cards you're going to be dealt in life. You know, they come up with that same hackneyed expressions and you have a hard time taking it seriously. And I think pool in some ways has a problem. And I think the reason I mean, The Hustler is one of my favorite movies, but I think one reason that I hate it. Also, it's because every pool movie has to somehow involve hustling. You know, it's like no one, no one for some reason can come up with a, a compelling storyline around the sport that doesn't involve having to bet money or revolve around trying to parlay someone or trick someone into playing you. You know, it always has to have like this hustling slant. And the thing about the hustler too, I mean, obviously it's called the hustler, but hustling is such a small part of the film. You know, it's and we can kind of go segue into the hustler just talking about this. This isn't a movie that tries to be bigger than what it is. It's a very it's an excellent character drama that uses a small cast. You know, it's not trying to be any a movie where someone has to pay off a debt in order to save a loved one. It's nothing that where a person tries to get in, get out of these sort of crazy scenarios and have to win the big game. You know, this is someone that's very interpersonal, and you can see it in the movie.
Betty. Look, I've got troubles. And I think maybe you've got troubles. Maybe it'd be better if we just leave each other alone. And I know it. You're hanging on by your nails. Let that glory whistle ring out loud and clear for Eddie, and you're a wreck on a railroad track. Your horse had finished last. Now, don't make trouble, Miss Ladybug. Live and let live. While you can. You tell your boys, they better kill me, Bert. They better go all the way with me. Because if they just bust me up, put all those pieces back together again, and then so help me. So help me God, Bert. I'm gonna come back here and I'm gonna kill you. Yeah, I, I, in one respect, you, you look at this movie and, and what you would call the first act is completely dominated with the single game of pool with Minnesota Fats and, and watch, seeing how drunk Paul Newman can possibly get, or at least, you know, pretend to get fast. How, how drunk fast Eddie can get, let's say. Okay, so, but then, and, and looking at it afterwards, you go, hmm. For a movie about pool, it's not, there's just, there isn't really a lot of pool in it. I mean, compared to something like Color of Money, which we'll talk about, which there's a hell of a lot of pool in that. Uh, but in this movie, there's not that much pool. But for a guy like me, see, one of my, one of my theories of film criticism is this. Titles mean things. And the name of the movie is not hustling, right? It's the hustler, right? It's about this guy. Right. And that's why we get so much time with Piper Laurie's character, who, you know, I tend to bristle at movies from Hollywood that get taken over by the love story. But this one I'll roll with, you know, because it's not typical. And um, it, was, it was it just felt a lot more real. And I guess this is what noir style brings to the table. Right. It's just that grittiness is real man that line uh i've seen this movie a few times but you know it's like once every 10 years or so, 10 years or so and that line this time where they're they're, they're talking in that uh bus station or that train station uh-huh. bar slash cafe or whatever and she goes it's something like and I, i'm gonna butcher this line but it's something like oh so you just want to take me out in the alley then and I was just like, whoa, this is 1961. That's a very real line. You know, that's a gut punch line, right? And and at that point, you realize that, hey, this is going to be about the hustler, right? This is going to be about the guy, and he's going to have that Sam Jackson Pulp Fiction come to God moment, right? It's going to be about him getting out. 
of the game. Uh, as to what you said about um, every movie has to be about hustling and comparing it to poker movies, you're absolutely correct. See, poker has to do that because <laughs> as someone who does a show about goats, if you want to talk about the goat poker players before the World Series of Poker, and realistically before ESPN steps in and makes it a thing, uh -huh. um, you have to talk about the guys who are playing in these rooms in Texas where the cops come in and bust everybody. You have, because those are the biggest games. But billiards had such a standing in the US and in the UK where it was a respectable game. Going right. back to the 1890s in this country, you know, I mean, these guys were among the top sportsmen in America. They'd be on the same pages with the boxers and the baseball players. You know, billiards was a big deal in this country. Uh, these guys were well known. So there's really no need to make it all about hustling. But I guess we find that exciting. Now, I, I would propose a, a movie that's not that's about pool, but not about hustling. Do the life story of Willie Moscone who was the technical advisor on this film, who dominated professional proper pool in the 40s and 50s, and, you know, is the secret MVP of this movie. Because basically, apparently his job was to teach Paul Newman how to move and to, and to act, basically, like a, like a pool player. And uh, for that, he should have gotten some kind of special Oscar, some special prize. Well, there was a book that I read a few years ago. It was called The Hustler and the Champ. It was by R.A. Dwyer or Dyer, I want to say. And it basically follows the parallel rise of Masconi and Minnesota Fats until they play each other in that ABC Wild, uh, Wide World of Sports game. Right. And it's, a, and it's a fantastic book that would make a great film. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of liberties taken, but I think that's one that they should definitely do. And to your point about... um the relationship and the love story. I mean, you could definitely tell, like you said, right off the bat, this isn't going to be your traditional Hollywood love story because, you know, even though it's marketed as the hustler, you know, the movie is about self-destructive people. You know, the trailer is going to push the, the pool part of it, but you really see how these self-destructive people are operating in a world that they have to find some sort of self-worth. And I think with her especially, you know, this is my fourth or fifth time watching the movie in the past few years. And this this time, Piper Laurie's character really stood out to me. You know, you could really see the expression on her face when she really has seemingly nothing in her life uh, put together. And the only time she really does have any sort of purpose is whenever um, Eddie gets his thumbs broken and she has to take care of him. You know, she's not drinking as much. She's actually fulfilling some of her writing goals. And whenever he gets the cast taken off, you just see on her face that she's a little disappointed. You know, she tells him how happy she is, but you can just see that there's a little part of her that kind of escapes. Like sort of the, uh, the relationship is now going back to the way it was before they only had each other when he didn't have pool. Yep. That phase is over now. Yeah. <laughs> it's done. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is when I think people, you know, people started, um, looking at movies to reflect a more real vision of life. You know, I think after World War II and I think, I think a lot of people 
you know, of course, people are affluent in America, but I think a lot more people are also realistic, you know, like people die. And, you know, uh, after all the 50s, when you had all these squeaky clean Hollywood movies, you know, that was really the rise of the Turner classic movie, the cheesy, happy ending sort of Hollywood movie. I think I think people just got a little bit tired of that. And by the time, of course, by the end of the 60s, you know, you, 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 it's completely dark. Yeah. You know, if Al Pacino well, is cutting people open, it's not a movie. Well, it, it, that is interesting because, you know, what people would say, like, the new Hollywood era of filmmaking begins in 1966 with Body and Clyde, where the movies yeah. were wide, darker, they were less theatrical and try to replicate real life. I mean, this kind of feels like a precursor to all those movies. Yeah. You know, if it had it not been shot in black and white and you shot in color, you would definitely think it was a 67, 68 release. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, maybe, maybe not particularly with this cast. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, with Newman, yeah, but maybe not with, you, you wouldn't get Jackie Gleason, you probably wouldn't get George C. Scott. I mean, all these guys are hitting it out of the park in this movie. Piper Laurie is hitting it out of the park in this movie. They're all getting Oscar nominations. Just, yeah. I mean, based on that alone, you know, leave the noir elements aside, leave the, leave the pool playing aside if you like. I mean, it's just the, the performances are just fantastic. Fantastic. Well, and it's amazing too. You know, two points. The first forty minutes, like you said, um, to me, like that's prime example of how you create an atmosphere for a movie. And it's also really good how you pace it because the first few minutes take place before the opening credits, like at some random bar. And then when they go into the pool hall, you can just immediately feel the atmosphere that it's creating. Because there's a scene whenever Eddie goes up to the um, the attendant or the cashier and says, you guys have a bar. He says, no bar, no bowling, no pinball machine, just pool. And the only, and the only sound you really hear is just everybody hitting the cue ball um, against yeah. the other balls and sticking them into a pocket. You know, it's they almost present it like a martial arts studio, like a martial mm-hmm. arts dojo. And then that scene, whenever Minnesota Fats and Eddie actually come together, meet each other for the first time, you can just almost feel like that stare off, you know? It's not like a real macho scene where they're getting in each other's face and throwing down the wad of cash on the table. It's more of them just trying to like outwit each other. Maybe that, that's where like the hustle kind of comes in, right? Just trying to feel each other out first before they start playing pool and everybody in the pool hall gathers around to see the match go on. I mean, that to me is just like the perfect way to craft, you know, sort of craft a scene and also set the tone for the rest of the movie. Absolutely. And then with George Scott too, I mean, he, I gotta say something about his performance because he's someone that says a lot without saying anything. You know, the first few, whenever he comes into the movie about 20 minutes in, I mean, he's just sitting there watching them play. But just from the way he looks at Eddie, you can definitely tell he's just like staring into his soul. You know, he's not trying to, um, make his presence known so much as he is just trying to observe and figure out how he can get the upper hand on him down the road. Just a very conniving presence. And really, I think, it's hard to say that anybody besides Newman gives the best performance, but I really think Scott, every time I watch the movie, I'm more and more impressed with him. Well, you're talking about like, okay, again, let's do this one. You're talking about two of the top, you know, 10 or so American actors in movies ever, you know, Newman and and Scott. I mean, these are guys up there with like Anthony Hopkins and Brando. Yeah. You know I mean? These are just like amazing uh, actors. Uh, the thing I like about Scott is, you know, three years later, 
he's doing, and I believe he, he gets an Oscar nomination, if not a, a trophy, for um, one of my all-time favorite movies, Doctor Strangelove, mm-hmm. uh, where, where he's Buck Turgidson, <laughs> General Buck Turgidson, and he's trying to convince, you know, the president that there's a missile gap. Um, just, just fantastic. Um, so I'll always love Scott in anything, but Jesus, I mean, this is a completely different part. You know, it's like you say, he's doing stuff with glances, you know, he's doing stuff. Literally, he's perched on that seat in the background most Mm -hmm. of the time. Like literally he's in the bleacher seats or whatever. And, uh, you know, so, so he's, yeah, coming out of the corner. Uh, he doesn't have to, like, you know, occupy that center stage to take over the scene when he has to, when he has to. And, uh, yeah, just, just fantastic. Just completely different character. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, our next film that we're going to be discussing is The Color of Money. Paul Newman. Cruise in a Martin Scorsese picture. He's got the eye, he's got the stroke, he's got the flake. Vincent's the best. We got a racehorse here, a thoroughbred. You make him feel good, I teach him how to run. I'm not your daddy, I'm not your boyfriend, so don't be playing games with me. I'm your partner. I love this. I made money. I lost money. I got half of me that says I got a hold of the best thing that I ever seen, and half of me that says it just ain't worth it. Why'd you take a walk? 500 bucks says you choked right now. You used me. Yes, I did. I'm gonna leave. This is Fast Eddie Felson. Who the hell are you? 25 years ago, I won my share of medals. It was over for me before it really got started. I'm hungry again. See some heavy legend action. I won his best game. You want my game? You couldn't deal with my game, Jack. You're outmanned. I'm gonna beat him, you know. What makes you so sure? Touchstone Pictures presents... You smell what I smell? Smoke? Money. The Color of Money. So tell me, Oz, what did you think initially when you first saw this? And I guess how has your perception of the movie changed over time the more and more you watch it? Okay. Uh, yeah, because I was, you know, I caught this in the theater first. You know, um, <laughs> okay. The thing is, I'm a bit of a late bloomer in the whole film study, film criticism game because – I was born and raised in a small town and of course, you know, before the internet and whatnot. So even before VCRs were really conveniently priced, let's say. So 
the real revelation to our lives is getting that driver's license, right? So we can drive to the freaking cinema, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I saw this movie when I was very young. So I saw this movie before The Hustler. Absolutely. I, I probably saw this movie before any other Scorsese movie. I want to say maybe Raging Bull I saw before this. But other than that, I think this might have been the first Scorsese movie I'd ever seen. Of course, everybody had seen Tom Cruise, right? Because he was in mm-hmm. Top Gun. And we all knew who Paul Newman was because this is who your parents' generation raves about, right? So, so I saw this movie first. And, you know, of course, when you're young, you think it's the greatest thing ever. Um, and, and plus, you know, I was in that sweet spot being a teenager in the eighties. And this movie, this is one thing I wanted to say about this movie. This movie is very eighties, right? By that, I mean, there's a lot of music videos <laughs> and yep. at this, at the center, um, and of course, the music videos are all done by a certain generation on MTV in those days, that dominated MTV in those days, namely the comeback guys, right? The Eric Clapton's and the, you know, Don Henley's and guys like this, you know, guys who had been famous in rock and roll in previous decades, but, you know, now they're making a comeback on MTV. And of course, you have this theme in the movie, too. Paul Newman doing the same thing. And in fact, finally winning that best actor Oscar after something like seven or eight nominations and not winning, right? Uh, for the film that he really shouldn't have gotten it for, by the way. But, uh, okay. So at that time, you know, it was right up my alley, but you know, I've seen it many times since then. It's a very, um, watchable movie. It's very what in that, you know, it's the kind of thing you just throw on. And, you know, there's always good bits. This is a very tight movie. The, I mean, again, for me, watching it this time, this must have been like the 10th time I've seen this movie, uh, not including bits and pieces. Um, and But this time when I watched it, I was really paying attention to it. The soundtrack was the only thing that drove me nuts. The soundtrack just drove me nuts. Everything else was great. You know, I just, I just think that, um, there's, again, there's no wasted time in this film at all. There's some nice cameos by some pro players like Steve Miserak, who was, a, he was a big deal in the eighties. He was doing light beer commercials and he was doing some wide world of sports stuff as well. He appeared on some of the later episodes of wide world of sports. Um, so he was a big deal. He's in this movie for a little bit. Um, it's nice to see that kind of stuff. Um, of course, Paul Newman is. Amazing. Tom Cruise is great because, well, for me, because I like this Tom Cruise. I like flaky, cocky, arrogant Ted Cruise. I, I, Tom Cruise. I like that character. This is, this is him. This is a younger version to me of the guy in A uh, Few Good Men. Okay. You know. Uh, you know, just as confident, just as cocky, you know, he knows he's good looking, you know, he knows he's, he's the best at what he does and whatnot. I I like that Tom Cruise. I like when he plays that character. So I really enjoyed him. I enjoy him every time in this. And of course, uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrioni, uh, is great. You know, she got a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Uh, I'm sure it didn't help that. Here's a very 80s thing for you. She showed a lot of skin in this movie. That was unfortunately, well, you know, unfortunately pretty obligatory 
in a lot of these films in those days. Uh, they didn't make her go full topless, but she, she does a lot of like, she shows a lot of skin. Um, so, you know, again, like, like, this is what a cynic might call a popcorn movie, but I'd call a watchable film. Nothing too deep. Uh, nothing, nothing really mind blowingly great, but I don't really think there's a bad moment in the film. Honestly. Yeah, this is definitely more of a pool movie than The Hustler. And I saw yeah. the I saw the Hustler first before I saw this one. So there there was a little disappointment whenever I did see it because you know usually when you talk about pool movies, everybody usually brings up. I mean, if you're a part of the younger crowd, you're gonna bring up the color of money first. And for me, yeah, it was okay. You know, like kind of like you, I I like the performances. You know, Tom Cruise to me got on my nerves in the movie, but then again, there's plenty of people in that world that are cocky and arrogant like he is, especially when they're trying to win money at pool. So I, I bought into it. Um, and Scorsese, see, see, they had to create a character that was in Eddie's role, right? Cause that's what this whole thing was about is this was the next Eddie, right? As much as this is a sequel to the other movie, right? But they had to do it differently. Right? And that was the way to do it. Right? Well, the, the in- well, the interesting thing is, is you could see how he becomes Eddie, but if you watch the hustler first and then watch this, you can almost see or ask yourself is, um, Eddie going to become Bert? Is he going to become George C. Scott's character? Because there are times where it feels like he's really using him for his own advantage, you know, trying to use him to capitalize on his talents the way that Bert had done to Eddie back in 1961. So when you like watching it through that lens, I think I was a little more interested in the story, especially when the focal point turns more towards Fast Eddie. Um, but another reason why I guess maybe like the movie doesn't really stick out with me, and like you said, it doesn't have the same grit or the same in-depth, um, not message, but themes that the first one had, is Nine Ball is actually my least favorite pool game. And in The Hustler, they're playing straight pool, which is, for those of you who don't know, straight pool is a game that's purely based on points where you can knock any ball in, and then if you scratch, you subtract a point. And back in the... 30s all the way up until probably the late 50s actually even before the 30s this was the game that most men played you know they would play to 125 points and if you were really pro you would play it's a 500 and sometimes even a thousand points and these games would go on all night and you know beyond that that's why in the hustler they're playing for about 25 hours so with this one since nine ball is not my favorite game I, i didn't really get as involved with this one and Paul Newman has a quote in there where it says everybody plays nine ball now because it's best for television. So it's cool. It's cool to see like how they've made that uh, distinction in the movie. Um, But overall, yeah, it's definitely a watchable movie. And if you're a pool junkie, you're going to love it. If you're a Scorsese fan, you're going to like it. Um, So I think there's something in this movie for everybody to see besides pool. But especially if you're a pool fan, it's going to be a fun movie for you to watch. I highly recommend, I had never done it before where I watched The Hustler and this back to back. And I did it this time and I was really glad I did because, okay, it struck me during watching this movie, The Color of Money. Here's what this movie is. This is Martin Scorsese waking up one day going, hey, I really liked that movie, The Hustler, when I was young. And Hey, I'm a director now. I wonder what Fast Eddie Filson is doing right now. And this script has echoes of the first movie 
all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it's not just this thing where you see often nowadays where it's just, you know, references for references sake, right? We're pigeonholing this so-called Easter egg in there. So fans will get off on that. It's, it wasn't like that at all. It was Scorsese appreciating that film. And I mean, I think I would guess that Scorsese has the Hustler script memorized up and down mm-hmm. because he really understood that movie. He understood um, not necessarily the themes of the hustler's life, but the way that the hustle works. You know, the 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 sphere in which these guys exist. Right. Like, okay, in in a lesser film, what might have happened is, is okay. Let's, for example, when they go to that first pool hall and and it ends up at the Werewolves of London number. Right. And he meets that dude and he's like, hey, how you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm running jockeys now and all this stuff. Right. That guy was not in the original film. In a lesser film, you would have had you would have dragged back that guy. You would have or you had a guy that looked just like him from the first movie and like, you know, thrown a bunch of makeup on him and have him play that guy and make references that. No, 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 you don't need that. Right. Because Scorsese, again, is just interested in. In Fast Eddie Filson, the next generation. He's interested in what happens to him 25 years later because I think he loved the first movie so much. Well, two, two points to that. The movie, both movies are based off a book and I have read The Hustler. I haven't read Color of Money and it's actually one of the few instances where the movie is better than the book. Hmm. Um, now Color of Money, from what I understand, was actually Tom Cruise's character has a little bit of a role, but it's not about him. It's about Eddie. Right kind of feeling lost later on in life. He owns a pool hall, but he actually reaches back out to Minnesota Fats and they start doing a series of exhibition games on television. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, Jackie Gleason wanted to reprise his role as Minnesota Fats in this film. Wow. And they had written a version where he does, but he had read it and thought he just doesn't belong in that movie. Because he was originally going to play Eddie at the end of the film in the tournament, but it just didn't work out. So Jackie said, all right, just forget it. Um, so that's definitely a scenario that I, it would have been interesting to see, but it probably would have fallen kind of into that cliched of, Hey, let's just bring back the entire cast and right. try to recreate the hustler. You know, right. Right. now something that is interesting. I was watching an interview that Scorsese gave. I don't know if it was like USA today or what, but um, they asked him like, what appeals to you about doing this movie? And he said, well, number one, you know, he wanted to do a studio movie and show that he could do it under budget. That wasn't the first reason, but that was one reason that he wanted to show that he can make a movie by studio standards and do it on budget. But Eddie was such Eddie was so similar to the characters that he constantly made movies about, like self-destructive, egomaniac or maybe not egomaniac, but always self-sabotaging through some pursuit like Travis Bickle, like um, Rupert Pumpkin in The King of Comedy. I mean, this was kind of a character that falls right in line with his style of filmmaking and the characters that he tells stories around. So he said he just wanted to follow up with Eddie and see where he was 25 years later. Absolutely. I mean, it makes total sense to me. I mean, because, again, that's totally what it seems like. And I'm not surprised he completely deviated from the book either. Or he had the script rather deviate from the book either. Because, again, that's not – I mean, okay – Sometimes you do a sequel like this. I mean, okay, the best example of this is Train Spotting 2. 
Okay. Okay. If you've seen Train Spotting, all right, it deviates from the book in some serious ways, but basically it's about two thirds of the book. Okay. They just leave a third on the floor, including one of the major characters, but no sweat, no sweat there, right? Not that big a deal. However, you did get a completely different film. Okay. So he wrote a sequel to this. It's called Porno. Right, with, with those characters from Train Spotting and a bunch of his characters from his other stories. Irvine Welsh is the writer of this. Okay. But then when it came time to do Train Spotting 2, he wrote the screenplay and he just took the book and he just threw it away, the sequel, and just threw it away because he wanted to do a sequel to the movie. Right. He didn't want to do the movie of the second book. Right. You see what I'm saying? And that's, to me, that's clear. That's what Scorsese wanted to do here. He wanted to do a sequel to the movie, not a, 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 a cinemization of the book. Yeah, and like we said, you know, it's it's a watchable movie, and I do think it's a movie that does seem to venture away from what he usually does. But I, I think, given the outcome of the film, it, it came out pretty well. Well, and well, I think, it, is- and it has a lot of his same trademark, you know, to because truthfully. I still would prefer the the cinematography or the, you know the shots of the um, pool games and the hustler as opposed to this. But you see Scorsese's style too. You know he has a lot of tracking shots, a lot of pans, a lot of like you know it has a it has a very unique style that you can recognize as him when he's shooting pool and he does it very well. So like we said, if you're a pool if you're a pool fan, and you watch this movie. You know it, I think it's as good as it gets from well, a, just, from, from shooting standpoint. I just wanted to say real quick, you know, there's this stereotype that Scorsese only does one kind of film. And to be fair, in the 70s and the 90s, yeah, his stuff kind of looks the same. But this film is from a period, you know, before this, he's doing After Hours. Mm-hmm. And after this, he's doing Last Temptation of Christ. You know, right. This is not Gangs of New York. This is not Goodfellas. <laughs> right, <laughs> these, yeah. These are all completely different films. So I think at this period, you know, in his career, this is when he's going, yeah, okay, I'm going to make the studios happy for a while. I'm going to, I'm going to try these different things that I want to do. You know, I love the Cass and Zakis book, you know, so I'm going to do the Jesus thing. And then he throws away the whole book again because he wants to do a movie of his own, <laughs> by the way. But uh, so, I, I think this is an outstanding period of, of Scorsese's career in that, you know, it's just completely different. I don't know how these films are going to go down in history, but it's a solid watch. Wish I had known you when you were a little younger. Around me, you might have learned a thing or two. If I had known you longer, you might be a little stronger. Maybe you'd shoot straighter than you do Maybe you'd shoot straighter than you do As he walked into the pool room You could tell he didn't fit In his handmade boots, custom suit Pearl-handled shooting stick Tonight there'd be a showdown Then everyone would know Who shoots the meanest game around The Baron or Billy Joe. Billy Joe looked edgy, about to lose his cool. But the Baron's hands were steady as the two began to duel. Yeah, he was like a general 
on a battlefield of slate And he would say to Billy Joe Each time he sunk the eight He'd say I wish I had known you When you were a little younger Around me you might have learned a thing or two If I had known you longer You might be a little stronger Maybe you'd shoot straighter than you do Maybe you'd shoot straighter than you do The Baron and the Kid a 1984 made-for-TV movie that stars Johnny Cash as a retired pool hustler who plays in the tournament circuit now and also encounters a young pool hustler named Billy Joe Stanley, a.k.a. the Cajun Kid, who turns out to be his son. The film then follows their relationship at various points during their exploits in pool halls and tournaments, and it's based off a Johnny Cash song called The Baron. Well, okay, TV movies obviously need their own sort of context, right? Because you can't expect <laughs> you can't expect too much from them. You know, they're, they're pretty much just a way for networks to make ad dollars with stars who aren't film actors, and they don't have to create like a television series around them. Um, you know, for what it is, there were some cool pool sequences, but that was quickly followed by predictable storylines, half-assed character development, cliches mounted on top of one another. Um, but compared, compared to the other crappy pool movies, I think this one might be worth checking out just because it's Johnny Cash as a pool player. Um, but there is something interesting about the movie in which you'll find out as you watch it that, uh, Cash is accused of cheating in a pool game by drugging his opponents. That's what he's accused of. And that's not something that I've seen in other pool movies. So that might be something worth uh, that could have been something that is interesting to go further if they would have done that instead of the father-son dynamic. But that was actually something, a unique twist that I hadn't seen in other movies. Um, but that's pretty much all I had to say about this. Well, what about you, Oz? <laughs> well, we started the top of the show with this, but this is the first line of my notes on this film is, can we please have more pool movies so that we don't have to resort to like go into this for our right. third movie. I mean, it's funny that you say, you know, it's a TV movie, so you have to measure it on a different scale. But that's the thing, dude, is like, look, something like this, a movie like this puts on full display the limitations of the TV movie. I mean, look, it's not as bad as Super Dope, which you also made me say right. for another show that we did. But, it's pretty freaking bad because it's a TV movie. Thank God this genre is pretty much dead, or at least for the mainstream, it's pretty much dead. Because look, I mean, for example, here, here's my checklist for this movie, and it happens in every TV movie ever. The acting skills are all over the place, right? You've got a couple good acting performances in here. You know, Johnny does what he can with this material. You've got a couple, but the kid is awful. Yeah. You know, his partner is the Cajun kid. Yeah, the Cajun kid is awful. His partner, the pigtailed girl, whatever they call it. What did they call it? Mary Contrary. Yeah. You know, uh, she was. She was okay. Pretty good. She was above average. I mean, she didn't get much chance to do anything. I'll talk more about that later. But okay. Every plot point is rushed. You know, hey, I'm your father. Whoa, dude, that's heavy. You want to get a cup of coffee? Sure. I mean, <laughs> right. What? Like nothing I mean, ever happened. The, the violence is cartoonish. You know, I love this bit where Johnny, like, 
shoves the guy over the table. The table upends. He go, he somersaults. He gets up, brushes himself off. And this yeah. dude's like 50 some odd and out of shape. Not a scratch on him. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Stuff like this all over the movie, right? Because again, you can't, at this time in prime time in the US, you can't show blood. And right. you can't swear. I mean, we all know this, right? But you can't show blood. You can't show people actually drinking alcohol. You know, stuff like this. Um, there's too much tell, don't show in this film. You know, there's too much, hey, remember that time, blah, blah, blah. Or they'll, they'll go, let's play pool. And then, hey, the pool game's over. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. You know, the ending is ridiculously sentimental. It's just like, you know. But again, these are all hallmarks. The, the people who put this on the air no doubt thought that these were pluses, you know, because this is a TV movie. Um, you know, Johnny tries to sell the thing. I, I mean, like, like, okay, like, for example, because I, I, I love bad movies because I get to beat them up like this. But, okay, for example, right at the beginning, right at the beginning, okay, we've got a guy who ostensibly is doing sort of this this trick shot thing. And again, this is the kind of thing that Moscone and Minnesota Fats would do in the 80s in, in America, uh, along with some proper tournaments. But for the TV, they do like these exhibitions, right? Okay, so he's putting on this exhibition for charity. This kid walks in, maybe underage, maybe not even, uh, maybe still a minor, right? comes in, Offers to gamble this guy too much money. He takes it and the people are cheering him on. It's like, what is going on here? Is any of this believable? But it's just like, again, you know, it's, it's a hallmark of a bad movie is you're just trying to move stuff along. It doesn't have to make sense. You're right. just trying to get from point A to point Z. You know, it's just, ugh, awful, awful. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, this is basically, you know, it, it seems that t- TV movies are basically just a way to give not film actors, you know, whether you're a musician, whether you're a sports star, whether you're a TV actor who may have some recognizable roles, especially in the past, who just need to cash in on something. And an executive says, well, you know what? People are going to recognize the person. So we might as well just try to see if we can build something around them. But let's do it as a TV movie because we don't have to commit to making 22 episodes of a season with this guy. So it's, it is interesting to see the dynamic and. Now, obviously, by today's standards, you know, having grown up in the world of television, it's unfathomable fathomable to think that executives really thought these were any good. And there's probably some good ones out there, but you would have to think that there would have to be some sort of um, that they would look back at these and say, what were we thinking? You know, well, maybe. Well, they knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know, they were just following a formula. But look, here's the thing. Okay. You have four choices in the 80s. Yeah, you have four choices if you include so-called PBS, right, which is public funded, which is usually stuff from Britain or local stuff, right? <laughs> okay, so it's not, not kids wouldn't consider this real TV. Okay, so you've basically got three networks. Okay, so your choice is limited, first of all. Okay, second of all, you're trying to get the most viewers. Now, you don't have the guts still in the 80s, to do something like Seinfeld, you know. You don't have the guts to do something intelligent, all right? And you're not, and you're still not throwing money at science fiction programs. Not really, you know. This is Buck Rogers. You mean like Twilight Zone and stuff like that? Yeah, well, no, stuff like Star Wars. 
Oh, okay. Post-Star Wars. Star Wars is still the most influential thing of culture right now. I mean, we're between Star Wars 2 and 3. Well, the second Star Wars and the third one, right? We're between that. It still dominates everything, right? Everything's science fiction, right? Everything's blockbuster. And kind of like now with superheroes, right? And so, okay, so they, they're, they're not doing this anymore. Battlestar Galactica's already failed. You know, Buck Rogers has already failed. Whatever. Okay, so <laughs> this is what you're left with is movies like this. Um, you know, and, and what they're trying to do is, so what do you do in this situation? You are appealing to the lowest common denominator, right? You're not trying to be witty like a Seinfeld and appeal to people's higher, you know, um, I don't know, higher sense. You know, you're not trying to be intelligent, right? You're trying to be stupid, right? So people will understand this. As I understand it, I've heard stuff like this, dude, that by the late 80s, uh, there were literally guidelines on the, on the vocabulary you could use for programs like Roseanne. Okay. You know, and, and it was literally like 1,400 words or something crazy like this, which is why you get these shows making up words. <laughs> you know, like, like, what are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm dogging. Right. Like, walking. You know, this is why you do that. Right? You get, because, get, you get the nose from standards and practices. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, from your own showrunners. Right. Your show. Well, that, that they, that they get from standards and practices. You know, I mean, right. they're essentially a corporate censor. Right. Right. Because they're trying to get that guy who graduated from fourth grade. Also that guy that, you know, is 90 years old. You know, they're going for the lowest common denominator stuff. And that's what they're doing with this film. You know, you got Johnny Cash in there. That's it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's just a matter of, well, I'm not even sure like how, pre- how prevalent was cable around this time in 84. Was cable kind of up and running it? Yeah, so it's like, you know, like you said, you have four, you have four networks. So basically, we're going to put this out there. If you want to watch it, fine. If not, well, good luck trying to find something else during this time slot, you know? I mean, <laughs> I mean, even in Cable's heyday in the 80s, during the 80s, uh, you're still outnumbering, uh, any cable program 20 or 30 to 1. Yeah. You know, these ridiculous numbers, these numbers that you just can't do nowadays, um, <laughs> that was possible with crap like this. Right. You know, you, you put this out and this probably had more viewers than, you know, the last episode of Game of Thrones. I mean, no joke, no exaggeration. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, everyone. That wraps up our billiards movie. You can get The Hustler on Hulu. You can watch Baron and the Kid on YouTube. And The Color of Money is available to rent on, I believe, YouTube TV and Amazon Prime. So if any of these movies sounded good to you, go ahead and check them out. Let us know what you think of our analysis. And don't hate us for recommending Baron and the Kid. Just take it for what it is. And Wait, I didn't laugh. recommend Baron and the Kid. <laughs> I didn't recommend well, okay, well, he actually, we're, we're going to continue this real quick. There were four different movies that we tried to pick out. There was a nuclear movie from Hong Kong that was nowhere. There's three movies from uh, a website called 8-Ball on the Silver Screen, which is a great website for pool movies. One featured Minnesota Fats. That was a lost movie. There was another one called Chalk from 1996 that is a, another lost movie. And another one called Running Running Them Out. Is that what it was called? Something like that. Something like that. All these sound really 
down-to-earth, gritty movies in the vein of The Hustler, but they're all lost movies that can't be found anywhere. So I just figured Johnny Cash as a pool hustler might be something worth checking out. But hey, you can't strike gold every time. <laughs> anyway, tune back in in a couple weeks for our next episode. Until then, sit back and enjoy the show. awesome attractiveness of Row 1 brand retro sports paraphernalia items thanks to Orville Mulligan, sports writer. And there it is. Wow, Orville, that's really the bee's knees. Isn't it just? A poster-sized replica of the actual 1909 World Series program cover. I can see that. But where did you get it? And where'd you get it framed? I ordered it from the Row 1 website where over 6,000 items of sports memorabilia from the 1880s to the 1990s are available for reproduction in multiple sizes and in several different materials, with over a dozen styles of frame to choose from for prints like this. Well, I'm sure Mr. Delft would love to put up more of these in the office, but I'm equally as sure they're beyond this newspaper's budget. <laughs> Not at all, my dear Marla. See for yourself. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one. SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash row one. Oh my, these are good prices. Oh, and look at this stuff. Oklahoma, Nebraska football, college basketball art, Michael Jordan items. And so Retro it was that Marla Delft discovered the spondiferous magic of row one sports memorabilia arts and prints. You can too by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash row one. That's R-O-W-1 number one today for access to the full row one catalog of gallery prints and gifts like t-shirts long sleeve shirts telephone cases coffee mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains act today for a 15 percent discount off all prints with coupon code shn15 and 20 percent off all other items with coupon code shn20 at checkout and keep your dial locked to the Sports History Network for the exciting chronicles of the 1920 sports world in Orville Mulligan, sports writer, coming soon.